0: I hope uh, you're doing well as we gather. And I hope you have seen U-571 and that that makes sense to you. What is clear to Mr. Tyler is, is that we got to have that valve closed um, or we're not going to have the ability to fire those torpedoes. And we hit the surface and Trigger is the only one that can get under there. He's the only one small enough. And Trigger knows in that moment, he ain't going to make it. If this boat, the people in this boat are going to live, Trigger knows this is his last few minutes on the earth. And it is a powerful powerful story. If you haven't seen U571, I don't know how you're going to be discipled as a man. I don't understand that. So if you have a chance, uh, that was the story of U571, incidentally, which has nothing to do with my talk, is about the capturing of the Enigma, the German um, machine that they use to communicate and encode their messages. We captured one of those subs, 505. It's the IXC class. We captured a 505. It's in Chicago. Next time you're in Chicago, you need to go to that Um, museum and tour that whole crazy submarine. I mean, it's amazing what all they have there. So anyway, has nothing to do with I'm talking about, but we are going to study together for a few minutes because that idea of, of men giving their life and laying down their life and taking, um, action to move towards and not move away. That is where we land this series. And so I'm glad we get a chance to be together. Uh, trigger in that scene is in a moment that is for him. God has put you and me and all of us in a moment that is for us. Sometimes that moment is about our marriage. Sometimes that moment is about me as a single man in the world that I'm engaging. Sometimes that moment is about parenting. Sometimes that moment is about our work. Sometimes that is about our friends. Sometimes that is about a ministry opportunity that we are engaging And so God has created these moments for us, and he wants for us to be spiritually powerful and ready and equipped for those moments. when I say powerful, I mean influential. I mean not authoritarian or, or, or overbearing, creative, insightful, winsome, emotionally available, able to connect. Able to endure, able to persevere, able to articulate, able to take action. That's what he wants for us. Rather than what we've seen of masculinity in our culture for years that is confused and ultimately self-destructive. So that's what he wants for us. Turn real quick to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a device, you have your Bible with you. While you're turning there, let me remind you, here's here's what we're thinking and here's what we're working on. There's a a fallen form of masculinity that we're all saddled with. And we're talking about what does it look like to engage a redeemed form of masculinity? Responsible for the people and the situations that God brings into his life. That's what we're labeling redeemed masculinity as. Is that we are responsible for. Responsible for situations and people that God is bringing into our life. It's a very spiritual idea that I am aware and alert to what God is doing around me. We want to take those situations, the people we engage, the situations that are unfruitful, and we want to make them fruitful. And even cursed. Situations that are cursed, and we want, to, we want to help redeem them and bring light and bring fruit to bear on those situations. I want to read to you our history. And the reason I'm going to do this from Ephesians 2, I'm going to read most of the verses up through 10, um, is it gives our history history. And if you're not a Christian, this is not your history. Part of this is your history. This is not your total history. And if you're not a Christian, that's okay. We're going to talk about some things in just a few minutes that are real practical that can be of help to you. But what we're saying is how does a person, in this case, a man, have a sustained motivation around the challenges of redeemed masculinity? How do you motivate from the inside rather than rules from the outside? How is a heart turned towards God, towards very difficult situations and even very difficult people? How is that kind of motivation sustained in a man over the long haul? And we find the answer in the history of who we are and then what God has done for us. And this is very interesting. So let me read starting in verse one of Ephesians chapter 2. He goes, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He goes, you were dead to God. You were alive to yourself. You were alive to this world. You were alive to your sin, but you were dead to God. That brings us back to Genesis 3 when he said, if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will die. And, and so he alludes back to that, draws us back to that idea. Verse 2, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Because that's the world you're in. All of us used to live that way. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Notice the motivation. Was to live for me. Whatever my nature said. Whatever I wanted to do. That's what I was doing. By our very nature. We were born into that way of thinking, that way of living, that way of feeling, that way of believing. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And so God's judgment was against us. Verse 4, but God, because we're so talented and amazing, and he wants us on on his side. He says, no, but God, who's so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. He goes, you were dead and you didn't make you alive. God made you alive. And it's not because of what you were doing. It's because of what he was doing. And sometimes you'll hear preachers say, it's not by works that we're saved. That's not true. It is by work that you are saved. It's just not your work. It's someone else's work. It's the work that Jesus did for you. Verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And that was the outward response and expression that we gave. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. None of us stands before God and says, well, I mean, obviously I'm here because I have this resume. I can read it to you, but I thought you might know what it already says. None of us stands before God and makes that case. Or um, leverages up on someone else and says, well, I've been so good. I mean, the reason you have all these problems because you're so bad and I'm so good. God bless me because of all that. He goes, no, none of us earned it. It's by his grace. It's a free gift. Then in verse 10, he says this. This is how we arrive at this moment. He goes, for we are God's masterpiece. Um, We can get the word poem from that word. It's this something that was very Powerful, internal, God brought into reality and made something. His masterpiece, his poem, his creation, his workmanship. That's a good word for it, his workmanship. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do. What's the goal? What's the goal of all that? He created us anew. Why? So we do good things. He's got good things for us to do. Here's what makes it even more interesting. Is that he planned those things long ago. So God has redeemed you and has a plan for you. And when we think God loves me and has a plan for me, and we think about how he wants to prosper me. I mean, maybe, but that's not really what the scriptures teach. He says, you were fallen and far away from God. He redeemed you. By his grace, not by your works, so that you could work. So you are saved, redeemed, not by your work, but for good works that he planned a long time ago for you to do. So we're gonna look at some categories. On the very first week, I mentioned um, some categories that we're gonna talk about and of ways that we can be effective. But here's what we're doing in each one of those. And we think about what it means to be fruitful. Here's what we're saying. We're responsible for, and by to be responsible, we're gonna move towards. And what's, what's my basic orientation? What do, I, what do I want to do? I don't wanna move towards. Now, certain personalities, have certain things that they want to move towards. So, if you, you could look at my personality in certain situations, like, well, he's not a passive person. He moves towards this. He moves all these ways I see he moves towards. But then there's other areas of my life that you may not see where that I shrink back from, that I hide from. I'm like, ah, I don't want to deal with that. Eww. And your personality might be the opposite of mine. So, then there's some visible things I can be like, well, he's pulled back from that. But there's other ways in which you engage. So, we all struggle. With some form of passivity, that we, there's areas where we just shrink back and we should be stepping forward. There's things that I know that I'm responsible for, and I hate to pick up the phone and engage that. I hate to write that email. I hate to send that text. I hate to call and say, hey, we need to meet. We need to talk about this. Or um, this situation, I know before I go into the situation, I'm getting rejected. I know when I sit down and say, hey, here's how we would like to help. They're going to say, no, we don't want your help. Hey, here's, here's a solution. No, I don't want your solution. I know I'm getting rejected before it ever starts. And I don't want to say, I don't, I'm not going to, why would I waste my time doing that? And he goes, it's not about that. It's about I'm responsible for, I got to move towards. And I got I to trust Jesus with this whole passivity thing. And so he's got good work for me to do. And in the moment, where I don't want to move, I'm trusting Jesus. I'm going, this is not about me. it's about God. i got to go down with this ship. This is what I've been called to do. And it's not going to go well for me. and It's not going to feel good. And, and, and I feel alone in this moment. Well, you know who else felt alone? Jesus felt alone. He goes to the cross. Father turns away. He gets cut off. He feels alone in those moments. He's isolated. And this, it's okay to feel that. It's, it's fine to feel that. And then... This other part, what does it mean to, to depend on God? Because my instinct, especially where I'm competent, is to be self-reliant. My instincts are around self-reliance. If, I'm, if I feel competent or confident in that area, and so like I can move forward without God. And sometimes I'm moving forward without God because I might be real talented in this area. I might be highly verbal. I might have lots of energy. I might have had a track record of success or whatever and move forward without thinking, does God really want this for me? This is what God wants me to do. What does it look like for me to move at a pace that uh, where God can speak in? What does it mean for me to be checked and go? God, God wants to own this moment. He doesn't just want me working off my talents, off my gifts, off of uh, my passion, off of my position. I have a position where I can get what I want. Like I have a wife who's real tender. I'm a real strong man. I can push her around. That's not being. It's not being dependent on. So we want to be responsible for by moving towards and depending on. And we have a number of ways that we can do this. And so how, how your personality processes all this. How you in a moment by yourself traveling on the road, in a meeting, in a conversation with someone realizes this, this is where I am in this moment. This is what I'm struggling with. I'm on this side or I'm on this side. Either way, these two things, I'm being independent of God rather than trusting in Him, being dependent on Him. That's that's something you get to carry with you for the rest of your life. You get to work through a grid. We're going to look at some examples in a minute, but those are just to help help your imagination get started and to give you some categories. There's way more categories. There's way more things for you to process, for you to think about. So we give a handful here that we'll talk through. Women, family, work, your soul, ministry. Um, but there's, there's way more categories than that. There's way more applications. This is for you to at least have some of this as a, as a, as a baseline. And then whatever applications come after that, you, you're good. You'll get there, right? So let's talk about what does it mean in each of these categories for you to be fruitful? to go from um, a situation or some people around you who are unfruitful to being fruitful. And we have this as an exercise that you can work through after we're done, right? So you get to spend some time working with it. But let me just give you some thoughts, some things that I, that I see all the time. I see in my life, I see in my friends, I see in our ministry, in our church. Um, when I think about women, what does it mean for us to engage well here? You have to account for the fact that You, uh, we're all in different seasons. What is a 20-year-old man dealing with versus a 40-year-old man? What's a 30-year-old versus a 65-year-old? They're in different seasons. What is your personality? Very outspoken, very outgoing versus this person who's introverted. Less words, maybe more thoughtful, maybe not. Your personality, your history. Was raised in the Midwest, was raised in the Deep South. Wherever you were raised, your history, you had a dad who was disengaged, you had a dad who was overbearing, you had a mom who was overbearing, you had a mom who was disengaged. Where you were raised, by who you were raised, um, uh, the environment, the things that you experienced, the early failures, the early successes, all that creates a world view. Right, that kind of shapes you, and then and then you couple that with your basic talents and abilities. Couple that with your age, your season of life, and then this calling. It's right. Everything is pretty unique. So what God has for you is very much about you. So when you think of this, a guy in his twenties, he's starting to build his life. Maybe he's married, so he and his wife are learning how to connect, learning how to be together, learning how to have fun together. You'll notice when you get into your 30s, you start having kids. One of your jobs as a man is you have to teach your wife again how to be a wife because she can get lost in motherhood. Not all do, but some do. And so you're having to work in those, 30, in those years in those 30s of going, hey, we're still a couple. That, that may or may not be your situation. Uh, in your 50s, what we've noticed is, because I'm, I'm there, and so some of my friends are too, There's a recreation of your family as all these kids leave and then they have their own lives. And then you're trying to figure out how are we alongside that? And then you are looking at your wife going, okay, hello, my name is, (laughs) and there's all these things that y'all haven't talked about or dealt with, or you have just been working on a common mission and you, and there's ways in which you haven't really been connected and it's a little scary. You got to figure all that out. It's a complicated season. So it's a good reason to just keep having kids, incidentally. Then you don't have to deal with that very much. How do you handle conflict? Do I like conflict and do I facilitate that? And once I do facilitate that, can I bring heal- healing? Or do, am I conflict-averse? Either way, as a man, I got I to gotta take responsibility for that in my home. Communication. I got to make sure that we're communicating well. I got to be able to humble myself and say, okay, I was wrong Here's how we're going to work on this. Or she was wrong and I still got to humble myself and go, okay, we're still got to work on this. I can't always wait on her to initiate. I got to be part of the initiation of making things right. You know, and you'll learn things about yourself. Early on, I am the least self-protective person up to my 40s that maybe not the least you've ever met, but very, not very self-protective. Now, I've learned in the last few years, I am very self-protective. It's a big shift that is not comfortable for me and not comfortable for my wife. She's like, this is not what I signed up for. I'm the one who gets to do all this. You don't get to do all this too. I was like, I hear you. I'm working on it, which is not fair. I told her that. It's not fair. Are you the sexual leader in your home? right? Or do you fear leading her in a way that sometimes will land you in a place where you are alone? Are you charming We say, oh, you got to go initiate conflict, but are, are you also charming to your wife? These are things that we are working on with our wife. How do you, this is a great question, how do you live with your wife, 1 Peter, in an understanding way so that your prayers are not hindered and not wind up, Genesis 3, obeying the voice of your wife? You have to figure that one out. How do you live with her in an understanding way and yet not obey her, right? Because not everything that not everything that anybody wants is right. So just because she wants something, or she says, if we do this, that'll make me happy, that's not a good reason for anything. It's not a good reason for you. She, said, "Oh, I want all this stuff still so to make me happy." That's not good thinking for you. It's not good thinking for her either. So there's a lot of thinking, a lot of work to be done there. One of the things I've noticed that what builds credibility in your family, and particularly with your wife, is when the decisions that you make, particularly in a point of conflict or disagreement, when those decisions do not benefit you. Over a long period of time, that will build credibility with a woman. Is that when you have to make hard decisions and y'all don't agree and there's some tension, if those decisions benefit you, it's gonna hurt your credibility. But if those decisions are benefiting other people, it will tremendously build your credibility. Well, there's not just your wife in play, there's also mom. Some of us have to take care of our moms. So my dad died a few years ago. So now I help oversee my mom's finances. So it's an aspect of her finances, big picture, that I I help take care of. And we have, you know, good conversations. She's been real easy to work with. But there are times when I have to say, hey, at some point, you're not going to be good at this anymore. How do we want to handle that? She goes, what are you talking about? I was like, when you're wrong, when you don't know what you're supposed to do, and I do know what we're supposed to do. How are we going to handle that? When you have to completely trust me or one of the other siblings who are not as gracious and kind as I am. But anyway, we'll get into that later. You have to trust your daughter or your other son more than you trust yourself. But that's part of my job is to be there to help take care of her. And single guys are like, man, I'm getting left out of this thing. You're really not. There are single women um, in your life that needs something from you, not for you to take advantage of them, not for you to get overly connected. And you go, well, she can change a tire better than I can. Or that probably is true, right? Maybe, but still there are things that you can do for some of the young women in your life, older women in your life, that you can help, that you can serve them, you can care for them. And sometimes they just need a male friend. They just need someone they can talk to. Someone who can give another perspective and just be a friend to them. Someone to go to dinner with. Someone to hang out with. You have to be careful with all that. But there's a role for you to play as a male friend in women's lives. So women, what about family? What does it mean to engage your family well, your children? And this is different in different seasons. I loved having two-year-olds where you come home and you wrestle. I would lay on the floor, and I really didn't have to do that much. I just lay on the floor, and the first two would just crawl all over me while dinner was being cooked. It lasted about an hour. they just wrestle, 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 and it was incredible, and I loved that time. It was exhausting and wonderful all at the same time, and I so miss it. And then as their kids get older, as your kids get older, then things change. How you engage them, things that you do with them that are fun. You need to know, as they get into the teen years, you need to know their friends. What are their friends like? One of you in this relationship has got to be on social media. It is my wife, not me. She says, you know, if I die, you got to get on social media. I was like, well, just need you not to die. Because then you're aware of what's going on in your child's life. You can see this is who they're connected to online. These are the things that their friends say. This is what they say. And a lot of this is really unhealthy. So you got to stay on top of that. You got to hold that off as long as you can. It's your job to lead on discipline in your family. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but women, my wives can be quite fickle on discipline. They can be very, very frustrated with the kids. And then when you take matters and you get severe, they're like, I mean, I think you might have overreacted. I was like, I had not been calling you all day about these kids. I haven't been texting you all day. You've been texting me about these kids. And now they're decimated. I thought you were going to thank me, have sex with me. I thought this was going to be a great moment of triumph and victory as they lay slain before you. I thought that's where we were going. Sorry, I misjudged the situation. Why does, don't want you to ruin everything? I'm like, ah, man, I got it. I got it. Right? But we have to take the initiative, we have to lead. Part of that discipline is not just reactive, it's proactive. We need to teach our children the scriptures. And I don't necessarily mean they have to memorize all these Bible verses, which is good for them to memorize Bible verses when they're young. And it's good for you to have devotions and teach them. But it's more important that you are applying the Bible to their life. When they say something, you're like, hey, let me tell you what's, what's not great about that. Let me tell you the principle behind that, what Jesus thinks about that, what God would say about that, what the Apostle Paul says about that. And you don't have to be a preacher to do all that. It's not that hard. But you have to be able to drag them back to something bigger than just rules of, I said, this is what we do. We come in at nine o'clock. We have, because most of our rules are completely arbitrary. And I used to tell my kids that. I'd be like, I understand most of these rules are totally made up. And is it important that you get the trash out on time? Not really. Is it important that you get your bed made up? Not really. But there are bigger principles of your being able to self-control. You be able to self-manage. You be able to handle your life. There are things that you need to be able to learn how to do that express self-control that help you for the future. Because I was talking to one dude, and uh, he works his own admission. He works way too much. He's very competitive, and um, he's got some teenage girls that he's working with, who are it's a good family. They're great. But he said, uh, "I said, what's your what's your biggest concern about the path that you're on?" He goes, "My biggest concern is I'm gonna stroke out and have a heart attack, and leave my family alone." I was like, "Oh, okay." And he goes, why? What's, what's your biggest concern? I said, my biggest concern is, I was like, if you stroked out and died of heart attack, then you'd be a hero to them forever. You'd kind of live in immortality. It wouldn't be that bad. It'd be, it'd be bad, but it wouldn't be that bad. I was like, what would be worse is they're getting ready to be uh, 17 and 15 and you're gonna be sitting at the dinner table and you can't compete because your head's over here in work world all the time. And you're not really that connected to them and you don't know how to contend with them and back them down and teach them what's right and wrong. And the men that they meet at school or what they see online is more compelling than you are. And you're not going to be able to compete with your own kids because you are a massive success over here and you're real powerful in this world. But when you get in their world, you're not powerful at all. I was like, that's way worse than you dying, in my opinion. He goes, I guess you've seen that before. I was like, I've seen it all too often, all too often. So we have to think about what, how do we teach and train our kids? What are, we, are we teaching them to work? Are we paying for all of their college? Or are they going to pay for part of it? Or are they going to pay for all of it? Are we having fun times together? Are we planning vacations? Do we have insurance? Do we have a will? Are we getting our family out of debt? Are we cultivating humility in our families and in our children? I was talking to a group of men one day and I said, the key to, they said, what's the key to parenting? I said, the key to parenting is humility. And they're like, yeah, that's right. We got to be humble. I was like, no, 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 not you, your kids. <laughs> I was like, no, you're, you're fine. <laughs> I was like, your kids have to be humble. God will humble you. You don't, God will come. That's already happening, right? Your kids, you have to cultivate a sense of humility in your kids. All right, work. Work is about, this is going to be frustrating for some of you. Get some emails. I'm ready for it. I know how to hit the delete button. Just kidding. Work is about making money. You're like, it's about glory of God. Okay, getting dressed is about the glory of God. Everything's about the glory of God. I mean, I grant you that. We can do it. Westminster Confession, I got it. We can do that all day long. I'm, I'm, I'm granting you that. I'm, I'm, I'm conceding that point, right? I'm conceding that point. Enjoy God forever. I got all that. Glorify Him. Got it, right? I'm saying, underneath that umbrella, work is about making money. And when this economy is going great, everybody in our church making money. is great. Glorify Jesus without my money. And as soon as the economy turns, we get start getting emails and phone calls of all these businessmen who think they've now been called into ministry. And then once the economy turns, they don't feel called to ministry anymore. Right? And then they're, they're, it's amazing how once things aren't going well, i start looking for significance. And I try to tell them, it's was like, returning an email in a secular job is the same as returning an email in a ministry job. It's just an email. There's not glory, Shekinah, coming down on you when you do email and you're in ministry. Right? Work is just not that fulfilling because of Genesis 3. It doesn't matter what The work is. So the world is against you. If you don't work, you can't make money. If you don't make money, you'll starve. Your children will starve. Your wife will starve. You have to make money to survive. The world is against you. So working, one of the things about working, it's about making money so you can survive. It is also about growing as a disciple because the hardship of work, humbles you and then anytime there's humility, God can cause growth. So he uses work to shape us and grow us and that's why every day, I don't know if you noticed this, but every day at work is not great. There are lots of hard days at work and lots of things you're like, God, we almost so close, we almost had it and it doesn't go well. God is using the fallen world to shape you and grow you as a disciple. God is also using your workplace as a platform for you to share the gospel It puts you in proximity with people where you can work in a way that gains credibility, where you can share the gospel. That is also true. And then, yes, there is an aspect to work where you get to explore your talents, your gifts, your abilities. But if you think of work as an opportunity to explore your gifts and talents, you will be heartbroken over the long haul, right? It is not ultimately about that. So the ideal job, if you are lucky, you get into your ideal job in your 40s. And so I know lots of 20s and 30s are frustrated because work is not what they thought it was going to be. And I was like, I'm sorry that someone lied to you about what work was supposed to be, right? I can't help it that the college you went to told you you're so valuable and so important. These companies are dying to give you a dream job with all the time off you want and all the money that you want. It's an amazing opportunity and I can't wait for you to get out there. They're shocked to find out that's not really what's happening out here in the world. But even with that, God is doing redemptive work in the world of work. It just takes time to get where you want to be. Most people in most cultures have not had the kind of latitude to move into the kind of roles that we do. And let me just say, if you're, if you're, if you're driven, if you're trying to get your significance, this was me, right? Trying to get your significance out of work. It's not going to happen. You got to go ahead and embrace that. There's other ways for you to consider what it means to be fruitful. There's other aspects of fruitfulness rather than self-fulfillment. And if you are lazy and slothful and you hate work, here's the good news, the silver lining to that cloud is you don't ever need to look for another job because the one you have, you're going to hate it just as much as the next one. So it doesn't really matter. Stay where you are, right? I just want to be encouraging as I can to all different kinds of people, right? Your soul, women, family, work, soul. Hard to laugh so early in the morning, isn't it? You don't know what's serious and what's not. Your soul. Here's the basic principle that I've come down to. I've been to seminary four years. I could have got my PhD at the University of South Carolina in sociology quicker than I got a master's of theology at Dallas Seminary. So I spent a lot of time in seminary. And I spent a lot of time reading books with famous people. But here's here's the reality of it. All you need to do is every single day do one thing to help yourself grow spiritually. Just one thing. Which you got to carve a little bit of time. It's not really a ton of time. time. It's reading the scriptures. It's praying. It's meditating. It's listening. And I mean, we have all these tools now. Like I ride down the road. When I go home, see my mom. I mean, I'll, from here to Columbia, I would just listen to the book of Hebrews. First and second Peter. Like I would just listen and just and you're like do you memorize all that? No, I don't. I don't remember all that. It's just thoughts, ideas, principles just raining down over you. And sometimes you just meditate on one idea. But it's just you got to you got to say I'm sacrificing some portion of my day. Every day to growing spiritually. That might mean connecting with people around a spiritual conversation. It might mean reading part of a chapter out of a book. It's reading scripture. Is that you are doing something to grow every day and you are showing God, I am with you more than I am with family, friends, money. This is more important. This is more important. And I'm tithing this time to you. I have a friend who's a builder. And during COVID, and he kept building during COVID. He's like, but just the world kind of shut down. And he saw it as a transition opportunity. And he had a friend of a friend and this church thing, that tradition he comes from. And one of the professors in that tradition started teaching a class online. And so he jumped into a seminary professor teaching a class on Tuesday nights to a handful of just Christian men around the country. And he jumped in. And so he's a part of this seminary class You know, and he's learning things he's never learned before. He goes, I didn't know that y'all thought about all this. I didn't know that y'all, y'all talking about me, right? And uh, it's been, it's been, it's just opened up new doors for him, new ways of thinking. And so it doesn't matter. I'm saying it doesn't matter. It matters what you do, but it matters more that you're doing something that you're carving out the time and the space, you're being proactive, and that you know that there is some part of every day that you are giving to your spiritual growth, to cultivating your soul. And biblical community has to be a part of that. Not friends. Friends are great. But you have to have people in your life who are helping you grow spiritually who may or may not be your friends. And sometimes them being your friends um, is not ideal for helping you grow spiritually because they don't want to hurt the relationship. So they may or may not say, so a couple of the men who helped me for decades, we were not friends, they were mentors to me. They were not worried about hurting my feelings. I got through with this long diatribe one day and I was sitting in a restaurant in Commerce, Georgia and Bill Shaw looked at me and he goes, I said, so what do you think? He goes, man, none of that makes any sense. He goes, what has happened to you? (laughs) He goes, no, no, none of that's true. Everything that you just, none of, none of what you just said is actually true. He goes, that is, he didn't use this word, but what he meant was, he goes, that is self-indulgence. He goes, you are feeling sorry for yourself and now you've cultivated that narrative. He goes, no, none of that's true. He goes, here's where it is. He goes, you're just not happy. <laughs> here's why. And he's started walking me through these things. You gotta have someone and you gotta have biblical community in your life to help grow you, help challenge you, help feed you, help hold you accountable. Or else, especially if you're successful, how do you know you're living in reality? It is funny. I meet people all the time, especially people who are very successful. They don't, they are not in the reality that the rest of us are in. Or if they're super talented, they may not be living in the same reality that I'm living in and the other people are living in, but they don't have anybody powerful enough to tell them that, or anybody who's not afraid of them to tell them that, or anybody who's cares enough about them to sacrifice themselves and tell them the truth and be like, Hey man, I don't, I don't think you're headed down the right road. I don't think you're headed down a good path. Something about this does not seem healthy. And I, and here's the other question you need to ask yourself. When, it, when I think about the condition of my soul, whose authority are you under? Like who can tell you what to do? You go, well, I mean, I'm a grown man. I'm American. No one can tell me what to do. If you can find that in the scriptures, I know it's an American idea. It's not a biblical idea. If you can find it in the scriptures where you arrive at a place that no one can tell you what to do, no one has authority over you, I would love to see it because I can show you a hundred places where you are under authority and people can tell you what to do. And you go, well, I I like being told to do when I agree what to do when I agree with it. That's the opposite of authority. Like if, if you tell me what to do when I agree, well, we just agree. Where submission comes into my life is when I hear something that I don't want to do and then I trust you or that authority more than I trust myself. And you go, well, this is the wrong path. Well, it's not ungodly, right? No one can make me do something that's ungodly, but I just don't agree with this path. Well, God who put this person over me has ordained this moment. So I'm gonna, even though I don't agree with them, I'm going to obey God because God put this person over me. Because that sounds authoritarian. Then you're in the wrong church. You got authoritarian wounds, you got to go somewhere else because we can't help you work through it. I'm just telling you, there's other churches can help you work through that. We cannot help you work through that. I'm just being straight up honest right now, right? We are not being authoritarian. This is, and I'm not even talking about church issues. I'm saying you got to have some men in your life who if they show up at your house tonight and they're like, here's what's not right with you. Here's where you got to go. Here's what you have to do. You need to have some men that if they told you what to do tonight, you would obey them. Because those men finish well. The men who live alone, they do not finish well. And you cannot make up your mind to be in biblical community and be under biblical authority. You cannot do that in the moment. That has to be cultivated for years before the moment. Then this last one, ministry. What energy are you putting forth that's not for you, that's for other people. Paul says at the end of life, he goes, I've been poured out like a drink offering. Where are you pouring yourself out? What what energy do you give to ministry that's not turned back to your benefit? And so I see parents that are frustrated with their kids when their kids grow up and their kids are very selfish and disconnected from them. And if you go back and look many, many times, not always, but many times, that kind of selfishness was cultivated in the home. It says, hey, we're home, we're all about having fun. We do what's best for us. We don't serve, we don't, you know. And so if you don't create a home where people learn how to serve and sacrifice from a young age, then how are you thinking they're gonna learn to serve and sacrifice when they get older? And a lot of this gets done under the family time myth that we are cultivating family time. And so we are at the lake because of family time. We are traveling because of family time. We're on soccer team because of family time. And so we're doing all this stuff with family time. But family time is always something that benefits us and never calls us to sacrifice and serve for anybody else. And family time is great, but all family time cannot be used as a cover for the fact that we don't serve, we don't sacrifice, we don't put ourselves out there, we don't pour out for anybody. And so that feels good in the moment. But as your children get older and you see them take that ideology and then they start weaponizing it and using it against you. Now, I'm not saying we do it for self-serving purposes. That's just a byproduct. Because we want to create a new generation of arrows that go out and have impact. God has given you gifts to use to serve and sacrifice for other people. It's the end of Ephesians 2, verse 10, where he goes, God saved you for these good things that he planned out for a long time. So here's what I would say. There's a lot of guys, when we get to this point and we'll be talking about it, they got, they got some ideas of things they wanna go work on with their family, their wife, work, whatever, friends. And they, they go out and they start thinking a new way and start implementing and then there's some failure, right? Let me just tell you, it's very important to fail. So when you go out, And you start thinking a new way and you start making decisions and you reach some failure. Do not let that pop your bubble. Do not let that disillusion you. Failure is important. It is how we get from the script to reality. It is how we get from theory to actual practice and failure makes us experts. And I've shared some of my failure stories. It's only when I fail that I get real clear on what the next time is gonna look like. And so it is important that we act, that we fail, that we humble ourselves. We learn what God has for us. We now trust in His Spirit in a new way. We learn how to depend on Him in a new way. We regroup, trusting Him by faith, and we go at it again. And that is where we become good at things. That is the practice. That is, David can kill Goliath because he's already killed the bear and the lion. He has been practicing, he has been working at it. And Jesus says this we'll end with this. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest. He goes, if if this thing doesn't die, it remains unfruitful. How twisted is that? How ironic. If it protects itself, remains alone, unfruitful. But if it dies, it becomes fruitful. The death of it is what makes it fruitful. Your death... Triggers death, saves the whole submarine. Your death, your continual dying, you laying down your life for other people brings fruit and brings life to the people around you. Let's pray. Father, would you give us your grace and your wisdom? Would you give us the ability to connect to grand ideas that come from your heart that we would be sustained and motivated by a gospel of Jesus that died for us, that paid for our sin, that was our atonement and our sacrifice, that gave us life. And now we are empowered to serve others and give our lives away for them. So be gracious and kind to us. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are, to be honest about the brutal facts of what's going on in our soul and in our lives and be able to address it and move forward in faith. Depending on you, trusting in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.